John chapter 5. John chapter 5 this morning as we are continuing our series through the Gospel of John. I'm talking with Pastor Ben last week and trying to figure out the right pace of going through the Gospel. Uh, two weeks ago, actually, he... I asked him, I said, do you think I'm going too slowly? He said, well, do you think you're going to have a chance to preach through the Gospel of John again in your tenure community? And I said, well, probably not, because there's a lot of other scripture to get to. He said, well, take your time, and let's go through it at a right pace. And I'm very thankful for the wisdom that he gave in that. And um, we've slowed down in Chapter 5. We had someone visit our church, uh, let's see, probably back in September and I, had, I, I ran into them a couple weeks ago at an event, that, and, uh, and he asked how the church was going, and he said he really enjoyed our church, and he said, are you out of chapter one yet? And I said, yes, we are out of chapter one, and we are into chapter five, but there's just so much that John is showing us about, about Jesus that we can't go too fast. You ever eaten a meal and you eat it slowly because you want to savor every bite? That's kind of what we're doing in the Gospel of John here. Is that we're looking at this and John, according to his own words, is building a case that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing we would have life in his name. And so he's, he's showing us through Jesus' own words and through his works this beautiful picture of who Jesus is. And, and for the first time, Jesus opens up about his own character, about his nature, about the relation of the Son and the Father, and the relationship of love that they share. And so we've been looking at verses 19 all the way down through the end of the chapter, all the way down through verse 47. And we're going slowly as we're, we're marinating in the text a little bit here, as we're relishing every. I decided to break verses 19 through 29 up into three different sections, each starting with the word truly, truly. And so last week I worked through verses 19 through 23, and we saw the honor that is, that is due the Son. And so we sing, Jesus is fairer, my Jesus fair. We look at the honor that we have that, that the Son possesses because of his nature and his authority by divine right. And so we worship him and we pray to Jesus and we pray to the Father and we worship the Spirit and we pray through the Spirit. We sing to the Spirit as the triune God, three persons in one. And so Jesus gives us these truly, truly statements. We're going to put our car in park on verse 24 this morning. So we see this beautiful text. Look down at your text with me. Given in the context of Jesus expounding on this truth in verse 18 that he is equal with God, he says the following in verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Lord, as we look into this verse, may you give great sight that we may see your truth and understand your nature. If there's one here who's not a Christian, 
May you change their heart of stone into a heart of flesh. May you breathe and give them the breath of life, spiritual life, that they may see, that they may believe and place their faith and trust in you alone for salvation. So we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. I would not consider myself to be a seasoned parent. We still have young children. However, it is interesting that you can sense a little bit about what a child will be like from a very young age. You can sense their passion. Those of uh, our teachers in our school who teach preschool or perhaps you've taught young children in Sunday school, you can see the different emotions displayed from different children. Some, when, when wanting something, are very passionate. Others are not. Some are passive. Some are active. And, and it's interesting that as you see these glimpses of children, you, you wonder how that's going to materialize as they get older. I remember my dad telling me as a child, and very vividly, I was probably six or seven years old, and my dad looked at me and said, Son, you're either going to be in prison or you're going to be a preacher because I don't think there's going to be anything between for you. Many of you know that I, I, I'm a positive person, very excited about things, and a couple of my children have that same look and, and, and action sometimes, and you and he, you've even, uh, some of you have even pointed at them and said, that, that's, that's a Kosser look, or that's a Shiloh look, or that's what Karis would do, or that's what Frisco would do. Because as people, we tend to not change. In 2010, there was an article posted in the New York Magazine, August 8th. The, art, the article was titled, People Don't Change. According to the article, it says, according to an arguably depressing new scientific study, people never really change. The article ends with this statement. So, if you're waiting on someone to change, maybe stop. Is that true? Is it true that people don't change? Is it true that the sin struggles you have now, you're destined to have for the rest of your life with no hope? Is it true, friend, that the knowledge of scripture that you have now can never grow? Is it true that people don't really change? Our passage this morning has a phrase that will go directly against that article. Look down at verse 24, and I want you to circle the two words, has passed. Has passed. That's a word of change. It's a word of transition. It's a word of transformation. It means to lead, to move. It means to change. It's often used all throughout the scripture to talk about a person leaving one place and going to another, moving their location from one place to another. It means a radical change. You see this concept given, though not the same word is used, in Colossians chapter 1 where it says through the gospel, you have been changed from the domain of sin and been translated, been transformed and placed into the kingdom of his dear son. 
that through the power of the gospel, people change. That God uses his word through his spirit to change people. Through the power of the gospel, God takes a person who is separated from him, alienated from all things holy and righteous, headed down the wrong path and spiritually dead in sin, and he changes them. He places them on a new path. He breathes life into them. And it's needed because every single person is born in sin and void of all spiritual life. Meaning that every single one of us need a spiritual resurrection. There's no way you can change yourself. There's nothing that any person can do to move even one step towards God. It's articulated well in number eight, statement eight of our doctrinal statement. Listen to what our doctrinal statement says here at Community. We believe that owing to this universal depravity and death in sin, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless born again. Now listen to the next statement. No degree of reformation, however great, no attainment in morality, however high, no culture, however attractive, no humanitarian and philanthropic schemes and societies, however useful, no baptism or other ordinance, however administered, can help the sinner take even one step towards heaven. But a new life implanted by the Holy Spirit through the Word is absolutely essential to salvation. And friends, it's so important. Because before you can be saved, you must first be lost. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you need to realize that you don't need a better life. You don't need to improve. You don't need an update to your operating system, okay? You need something that only God can give. True change. And that's what this verse is all about. Verse 24 gives us a confident hope, listen carefully, that God changes people. Jesus begins with the phrase, truly, truly, not because the stuff that he said before was untrue. I make the comment every once in a while, well, to be totally transparent, and I had somebody say, well, do you hide things from people when you're not saying that? And no, it's not what Okay, just focus in on this verse. To, to be completely honest with you, because other times I lie. So, to be completely honest with you, we're saying that kind of stuff all the time. What are we mentioning? What are we trying to emphasize? That this statement is of supreme importance. Jesus can't lie. He's the very definition of truth himself. So this beginning clause as Charles Spurgeon would say, brings a special reverence to, these, to this verse. It brings a special reverence to this thought. And then we should recognize that we need to be careful in this passage and we need to dive deep. Because if Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, it's him saying, lean in and pay attention. And so I'd like to look at verse 24 and I'd like to bring you three facets of this statement, three aspects of this statement that are going to help us understand what Jesus is saying in verse 24. So the first thing I'd like to show you is that this statement is about an individual. This statement is about an individual. This statement is not about church as a whole. You don't come to Christ by joining a group. 
This statement isn't directed as a na in a nation or a group in general. It is directed at an individual. Truly, truly, I say to you, what is the next word? Whoever. Now let's be careful because we're not universalists in saying that everyone, regardless of their faith, is going to heaven. No, the, the subject, if you're, if you're a grammarian in this room, if you're, if you're an English person, the compound subject here in this statement, this compound clause, the subject is found in whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me. That's the subject. It's a person. It's a singular person who has these aspects true about them. Whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me. Whoever. The one who is, is, the, is the literal translation of, of what John is saying here. The person who hears and believes. And so this individual is without qualification. It's not the American who. It's not the Chinese who. It's not the Spanish who. It is, a, it is a statement that is without qualification given to all people. There is no person who is not in need of this message. No matter what family you were born into, no matter what church you go to, no matter where you live or what language you speak, there is not a single person on this planet who does not need this message. Whoever... It's a call without qualification. It's also an individual call to action. Look carefully. <clears throat> Whoever what? There are two action words here. Hears and believes. Now I want you to notice something very important about this passage. Hear and believe is joined by a very specific Greek word that combines the two. The way the sentence is structured, it combines hearing and believing. In other words, it's not as though one person can hear and become a Christian and another person can believe and become a Christian. It's that in order for salvation to be wrought in your heart, in order for change to be brought into your life, there must be one action made up of these two things, hearing and believing. They're joined together because hearing without believing is just to amass information in your brain. And believing without hearing is to get the object of your faith wrong. Perhaps you believe in the wrong God. Everybody has faith. It's just what your faith is in. So genuine salvation is grounded in the Word of God and trusting in the God of the Bible as the object of faith. To hear is to believe, and to believe is to hear in regards to salvation. And this concept is tied together all through the Gospel of John and all through the Scripture. In fact, when you start seeing this couplet together, hear and believe, hear and believe, hear and believe, hear and believe, you'll start seeing it everywhere, even in the purpose of the book that I gave you earlier. But these things are written that you may believe. The Word of God and belief together. They're coupled inseparably. So what does the genuine believer hear and believe? Well, specifically, look down at verse 24. We're going to follow carefully. Whoever hears what? My word. Hears my word. 
Listen carefully. There is no salvation outside of the hearing of the Word of God. Where the Word of God is not present, there can be no salvation. Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the Word of God, is the righteousness of God revealed from faith for faith, for it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. The power of God is wrapped up in the good news of the gospel. Romans chapter 10, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But don't stop there. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? There it is again. How are they to hear without someone preaching? Verse 17 of Romans 10. So faith comes from what? Hearing. And hearing through what? The word of Christ. Where does your faith come from? Your faith is generated by the power of God through the word of God. It's not something that you generate in and of yourself. Romans 10, 17. Faith comes from hearing the word of God. You cannot have faith outside of Scripture. You cannot have saving faith outside of Scripture. It is the word of God that carries the power of God to change lives. Jeremiah 23, 29. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? You know, the Bible is a very divisive book. Either you believe it or you don't. And if you believe it, you believe all of it, and you see the power of it to change your life. It's amazing that if you take a Bible and you carry it with you, people notice. You can carry any other book, and nobody will say anything, but if you sit down on an airplane, as I have often, traveling to speak somewhere and working on my sermon, whatever it would be, and you sit down and you pull your tray down, or, you know, if you're taking off, can't have it down yet, so you open your Bible and you put it on your lap and you start reading, it is fascinating to see people's response. Either people get curious, wonder why he's reading his Bible, or they get super mad, just, just furious, or they shut down and they get embarrassed. When you pull out a Bible, it's a divisive book. It's, it's fire. It's like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. It's active, Hebrews 4, sharper than any two-edged sword. So what are you commanded to do, believer? What is a characteristic of a genuine believer? You hear the word. But I think it would be beneficial for us to ask the question, what does it mean to hear? What does it mean to hear? There's a difference between hearing and listening, isn't there? What's the matter, son? Is there no space between your ears? Because every time I speak, it goes in one and comes out the other. You hear me, you're, you're, you're hearing me, but you're not listening to me. So what does it mean to hear the word of God? Well, it obviously means something different than just processing information. Because in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 5, Jesus refers to those who are unsaved as those who are dull of hearing. 
And he's not saying that they need hearing aids. He's saying there's something about their soul that is holding the truth at, length, at a distance, at an arm's length. I was really helped by reading a Puritan, John Boys. John was born in the early 16, or the late 1500s, lived in the early 1600s. He was a, a, a prodigy, especially in Christian circles, because by the age of five, he had read the Bible cover to cover. And by the age of six, he could read and write fluently with Hebrew and Greek. He was an amazing man gifted by God with a passion for the word, so much so that he was recruited to serve on the translation committee for the first King James Version of the Bible in the early 1600s. John Boys isn't known for a lot, but he's known for a phrase, a statement that really stuck out to me, and I think it'd be helpful for us to, to remember this phrase. And here it is. John Boys said, faith is the soul's ear. I like that. Faith is the soul's ear. In your heart, when you believe something, it's your soul listening. It's your soul digesting information and believing. What is hearing the word of God? It's taking the word of God and letting your soul listen to it. We all know what it's like, the difference between sitting down to read our Bible and our eyes skimming the page because we have so much to do that day. And the difference between letting the words of Scripture digest in our soul. Hearing is believing the Scripture as it comes in in your soul. It's the soul's ear. That's what faith is. And so that ties us directly into the second part of the statement. What are you supposed to hear? You're supposed to hear the word, but what are you supposed to believe? You're supposed to believe God. It's the same word for faith that's used all through the scripture. It's not as to believe that God exists, James chapter 2 and verse 19. Even the demons believe and they tremble because they realize that God exists. So believing God isn't just a belief that God exists and that somehow he exists to serve me. Or, or maybe I get his identity wrong. It's not just a big man upstairs. Believing in God is not believing God. And so verse 24 says, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, believes the God of the Bible. What is genuine belief, genuine faith? Throughout the last two years, I've been working slowly through Thomas Watson's Body of Divinity, written several hundred years ago, as it works through different aspects of the Christian life. And several, several months ago, I ran across his definition of, of belief, which is Anchored, saving faith, which is anchored all through different passages of Scripture. And, and Thomas Watson would give us, I think, three helpful ways that we can understand saving faith. Number one, it's saving faith includes, must include, what he calls a self-renunciation, or it's, it's, it's a getting away of yourself. It's a getting out of yourself. It's taking off your own merits. It's recognizing that you do not have what it takes to initiate salvation on your heart. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 3. Not having my own righteousness which is of the law. Is what Paul says. It is recognizing that you can't do it on your own. Saving faith involves you realizing that you need something. 
Secondly, it's a reliance or a resting. The soul casts itself upon Jesus Christ. It rests upon Christ's person. It's a self-renunciation. It's a reliance. It's a beautiful picture of of one who loves another in, in the Song of Solomon, chapter 8, where it says that she rests on her love. And so the heart is called to rest on Christ. And thirdly, it's, a, it's an application. Watson would use the word appropriation. It's saying, you know, I, I recognize my need. I rest on Christ personally. Once again, it's not a group resting. It's not a group faith. You aren't saved as a married couple. You aren't saved as a family. We aren't saved as a church. You are saved individually, appropriated to your soul. John 1.12. You can say it this way. We combine that definition, which I think is... Expressly biblical, we could say, saving faith is recognizing you have no merit of your own. It's casting yourself into the arms of Jesus alone and applying that work onto your heart that you need to be saved. I'd like you to notice in verse 24 that Jesus does not give any other condition than to hear and believe. There's no other condition given. There's no condition of age, although a person must be old enough to understand. There's no condition of background. There's no condition given of, of rich or poor. There's no condition of well-educated or not well-educated. There's no condition of your success or your failure. The only condition that's given for salvation is that you hear and believe the gospel. You hear the word of God so you get Jesus right and you believe the God of the Bible. Now, before we move on to the second point, I'd like to make a very important application on this individual nature of verse 24. I'd like you to look down and read carefully and notice the difference between hearing the word and believing in God. And I'd like to make a, a point that I think will be helpful for you, and it's this. Bible study and Bible reading is important, vitally important for the Christian life but as a means to an end of worshiping the God of the Bible. We read the Bible so that we can know the God of the Bible. We don't worship Bible study. We don't worship methods of Bible study. We don't gather together for Bible study as an end in and of itself, but as a call to worship the God who wrote the Bible. We study the Bible so we can be driven to worship we sit under preaching so we can be driven to worship. You need to hear the word with your soul of faith. And then you need to worship the God of the Bible. And so in your personal Bible study, begin with prayer and end with worship. You may not have a, a voice that other people want to hear sing, but God wants to hear it, okay? So get a closet that's... That's away from everyone else and sing praises to God. I praise the Lord for, 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 for voices like we had sing. For Sam and Steph and, and Carol Ann and Sean and, and Susanna playing the piano. I'm so thankful for that. But that's not a requirement for worship. 
A community we believe that the sound of worship in the church should be the sound of God's people singing. Isn't it great to sing in a room like this with all the sound bouncing on the ceiling and off the wood? These great acoustics. The sound of worship should be the sound of primarily the sound of God's people singing. And so let your Bible study and your reading drive you to worship. For if you stop at one little nugget to help me today, you're missing the whole point. Be driven to the God of the Bible. You worship him. Hear the word. Believe the one who sent you. The statement is about an individual. Secondly, the statement in verse 24 is about a transformation. Now I want you to read this verse carefully. This, this verse is not a formula. It is not a process. Some people have read this verse and misunderstood this verse as a process. In order for you to be saved, you must first hear the word, secondly, you must believe God, and then thirdly, you will be given eternal life. But that's not the way this verse is written. This verse is not written as a succession of events. Every single action in this verse is in the present, except for one, which we'll that in a minute. And it is a statement about transformation. Truly, truly, I say to you, what is true about the person who hears and believes? Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, what's the next word? Has. Or if you have the King James, hath. It doesn't say will have. It doesn't say one day in the future will have. It says right now, in that present moment, it is a statement about the possession of life. If you hear and you believe, you have life. So often we think of the gospel as a succession of events in time. As if a person hits their knees and over the next 15 seconds will hear the word, will believe the word, and then God's going to zap them with eternal life. But that's not the picture of the gospel. It's not the picture of salvation in scripture. The picture is that at one point you were unsaved and in the next instant you're, you're a believer, you're saved. You possess eternal life. There's no progression to the salvation. It is a statement about a moment in time. It is immediate. It's an immediate transformation. The picture is that of a person lying in a jail cell, chained in sin, dead on the floor. And the light of God shines into the cell. And in one instant... That person, the chains of sin are broken and they are alive. It's not some sort of slow warming of the body and a succession of events. It is an instant salvation. Not only is it immediate, this transformation that God makes, but it is eternal. It's eternal. Hearing and believing that person has eternal life. They have passed. There's our transformation. That's the only perfect tense action. It means it was done in the past. It's the only past tense action in the entire sentence. 
Everything else is present right here, right now. You've passed from death to life. It's a transformation. The life that's given to the transformed person breathed into the, to, to the dead, the spiritually dead soul, that life is the very life that proceeds from God the Father. It is the life of God given to you and given to me. I'd like you to see that this is an unending life. It is this life that we will enjoy for all of eternity. Friend, listen carefully. The same spiritual life given to you at the moment of salvation is the same life that you will experience for all of eternity. Not only is it an unending life, it's also important for us to recognize that this is a permanent life. The life that is given to the believer cannot be lost, or it will be less than eternal. There are false doctrines that would teach you that you can generate a saving faith, and then through your disobedience, you can lose that saving faith. But Romans 10, 17 says very clearly that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 18 says that even faith is a gift given to you by God. Friend, you can't lose something you didn't earn. This is an eternal faith possessed by God, given to you, so that as we sing often, he will hold you fast. It is eternal the reason that you can't lose it is because it didn't come from you to begin with. God possesses his children. As we'll see in the coming months, all those who are given that eternal life are held in, in Jesus' hand and that hand's in the Father's hand showing us our union with Christ. And no more can Jesus lose his life than you can. For through your union with Christ, you've been brought into an unending, permanent spiritual union with God. It's about a transformation, eternal life. Thirdly, this statement is about a rescue. It's about an individual. It's about a transformation. And it's about a rescue. Have you ever purchased something in your house to replace something else and realize that you should have just stuck with the old faithful. You ever had a car that was working fine? Maybe it had a little scratches and a few dents in it, but it was working fine. And you go and you buy a brand new car off the lot, or maybe you go to a used car lot that's shiny and it's new, and you start driving it, and within a month, you're already regretting the change that you made. You know, the other day I was, I was telling Becky, um, I'm finding myself with specifically like certain clothes not wanting to let them go. I'm turning into a, a grandfather, so I'm feeling it. You ever notice there are certain things that grandfathers never get rid of? Belts that are like almost broken. They're just being held on by thread that you just can't let it go. Why? Why? Because the, old, the new one's not going to fit me like this one does. Right? Undershirts. Why? holes everywhere, but they're so comfortable, you just can't let them go. Why? Because the new thing I'm going to buy 
is not going to be as good as what I have. We call it buyer's remorse. Friends, it's not that way with salvation. Do you know why? Because salvation is a rescue. It's a rescue from the clutches of hell into the beauty of heaven. It's, it's transferring your ownership from Satan as a slave master to the most wonderful Lord you could ever serve. It's important for us to understand that this transformation is not a transformation that would bring any buyer's remorse, but it's a rescue. It's a rescue. Look at the very last statement in verse 24. What a beautiful statement this is. He does not come into judgment. Who's he? It's the person who here believes. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. That does not come into is not speaking of future judgment. It's speaking of present judgment that culminates in future judgment. If we look back to John chapter 1, we see that everyone is born in unbelief. And as a person born in unbelief, we are under the present judgment of God. And so this coming into judgment is a present reality that, that you are no longer under the present judgment of God that, that as a reformer would say, you no longer have a judge in heaven, but you have a father. You have an advocate with your father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who is standing on your behalf. You're no longer under judgment and will not come into judgment because Jesus was judged on your behalf on the cross. As your substitute, Jesus took the wrath of God so you do not have to. Yes, your physical body will one day die, but your spiritual soul will never experience death and hell. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who hear and believe are not currently under the judgment of God and will never find themselves under the judgment of God because you're under the grace of God. You've passed from death to life. In the past, the only past tense statement in this entire verse, these two sentences, is the fact that in the past you, you passed from death to life. You've been transformed. You've been given life. So what are some considerations on verse 24? First consideration I'd like to give you is that it's the power of God through the word of God that brings salvation. Genuine belief cannot be manipulated or coerced into the heart of a person. Dear brother and sister, listen carefully. If you have a spouse, a child, family member who's not a believer, as I do, a family member, not a spouse. <laughs> I have an extended family member, several, who are not believers. You need to rest here. You need to rest here. You need to take your emotions 
and the stress and the pressure that you feel and you need to rest on this promise. It is the power of God through the word of God that brings salvation. You may try to act like a fire and a hammer. The prophet Jeremiah says it's only the word of God that is such. Only the power of God through scripture can accomplish a work in someone's heart. Only God can change. Your manipulation, your coercion is not what God needs to save that fellow family member. We use a term here community among our staff and, and in our family, the term of velvet covered brick. We've said that before, some of you are visiting may have never heard us say it, but it means that the truth of God is very heavy and our responsibility is to be the velvet that covers that brick and simply lay that brick on someone's heart. Power of God that brings salvation. Second consideration I'd like to offer you is that eternal life is a present reality for the believer. You don't have to wait to experience this life that God offers you. This life, this freedom, this eternal life, this joy is available to you through the mercy and grace of God right now. As you separate yourself from sin, as you fill your heart with the word of God, as you fellowship with the Lord in prayer, so you can live and experience this eternal life. Do you remember that unhindered joy that you had at the moment of salvation? Some of you were saved later in life, and you remember the burdens that were lifted. You remember the joy. You can live in that moment every day. As you stay far from sin, as we sung, abhorring sin and adoring Christ. Do not believe the lie that experiencing sin brings joy and fulfillment. Sin only brings guilt and shame. Recognize that you are dead to sin and alive to God. Romans 6, Paul says, sin does not have dominion over you. For you're under grace. The third consideration is that the believer is never under the judgment of God. Christ redeemed us from the curse from the curse. Galatians 3.13, how? By becoming a curse for us. John chapter 3, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is already condemned. This means that when your soul, believer, in your heart, when your emotions condemn you, when your emotions twist your soul around from the shame of past failures, you need to be reminded that you stand in a position of blessing from God. God is not an emoji God. That as you sin, He frowns on you. And as you sin more, His face gets red with anger. But as you have your devotions, He smiles on you. Friend, you are in Christ. Which means that the way that Jesus looks, the way that the Father looks at Jesus, is the same way that the Father looks at you all the time. And you can live in that joy. It's available to you through the grace of God. Your sin has been nailed to the cross, so release past failures. Forgetting the things which are behind, as Paul said. Pressing forward to that which lays before. 
you're a Christian, you will never, now or in the future, be under the judgment of God. You've been set free from that guilt. I found a hymn, an old hymn, that speaks to this specifically. It's written by the same hymn writer who wrote Wonderful Grace of Jesus. You know the one with that rousing men's line on the chorus? He's a Scandinavian hymn writer. I don't know why I won't sing it anymore. It's entitled, Once I Was Bound by Sin's Golden Fetters. Is the title of the hymn. This is how it goes. Once I was bound by sin's galling fetters, chained like a slave, I struggled with sin. But I received a glorious freedom when Jesus broke my fetters in twain. Glorious freedom, wonderful freedom, no more in chains of sin I repine. Jesus, the glorious emancipator. You've never sung a hymn with that word in it. Jesus, the glorious emancipator. Now and forever, he shall be mine. Those may be words you're not used to, but that's the message. That Jesus is in the business of changing people. That through the gospel, you can look like Christ. Christ. 